just felt like an absolute spaz. Today is one of those days. It is. It has been a rough morning, uh, technologically, sermon-wise, just getting everything. So anyway, we are here. Um, I need to do one little housekeeping update. Uh, just uh, when we start, or in July, uh, we're going to start a series on the church, what the church is, and, and just everything that entails. Um, and we just finished Philippians, and I said I was going to preach a sermon uh, on the Trinity within Philippians. And I was, I was working on that this week. I realized as I'm just working out the Trinity that today is Pentecost, and so, or Pentecost Sunday. Um, I also realized that maybe I need to take a sermon and preach on the Trinity as well. So for the next three sermons, today we're going to look at Pentecost and Acts 2. Uh, next week we're going to look at the Trinity, the persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, three persons in one God, one being. And then, I'm pretty certain, 99% sure, we will close out Philippians looking at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the book of Philippians. Um, just for next week, just so you know, uh, the Trinity is a mystery. The Trinity is super duper difficult to understand um, and even communicate and preach. And so I will, I will do my best to make it accessible, uh, even for my own understanding. So please, uh, as you pray for me and preparing uh, to preach each Sunday, uh, definitely don't skip out on next week as that is, you know, it's... It's our God who is incomprehensible, yet he's still, or incomprehensible, yet he still is a personal God who wants us to know what he has revealed. So uh, today we will celebrate Pentecost uh, from Acts 2, and I will start in the passage. I am not going to, uh, if you have your Bibles with you or cell phones, um, turn to Acts 2. I'm going to read all the way through verse 41 but I'm just not going to click it and do that. So once I get past verse 12 here, uh, I'll still be moving on, but I won't click that. So, all right. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. 
we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know yourselves, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. A heavenly Father uh, has a sermon. Lord, that is, that, is, that is a sermon we want to preach every Sunday, Lord. That Christ is Lord and Messiah. That he died for our sins and rose from the grave for our justification. That when he ascended, he sent the spirit who descended on sinners such as us with hardened hearts and gave us new life so that we would, we would want what David says, that you have made us known the path to life through Jesus Christ and you will make us full of gladness in your presence. God, it is a wonderful day today to celebrate the coming of the Spirit and the day of Pentecost. As this, that day, and this day is the day that you have made. Lord, may the glory of our triune God and the coming of the Spirit be manifest, be known, and understood. And may that lead to us rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's known as Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday. The word Pentecost means 50, and initially it was given to Israel to commemorate the festivals of weeks, or the festival of weeks, which were seven weeks or 49 days from the day after the Passover Sabbath. And it celebrated the end of the grain harvest. We find those instructions about the festival of weeks in the Law of Moses, or a.k.a. the first five books of the Old Testament, excluding Genesis. However, that was prior to Christ's incarnation, and on this side of Christ's resurrection, we, the church, observe Pentecost as the amount of days between the day Christ rose from the dead and the day the Holy Spirit was given. It's been 49 days since Easter. Now, many of us are well acquainted with celebrating the incarnation of Jesus during Christmas, observing the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday, rejoicing that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter or Resurrection Sunday, and it's good. That's a good thing. It's good to observe and celebrate those. Celebrate what God has done. It, it's, it's the fulfillment. Those days that we observe and celebrate are fulfillments of God's plan of redemption to send the Son of God to be born of a virgin, born under the law of Moses, in order that he may fulfill the law in complete righteousness so that he could sacrifice his life for ours. 
Each one of those, those days that we celebrate, the advent of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, those were all necessary in order for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled back to God. However, what we don't typically celebrate, and and this is a generalization, so if you do or have, just take that with a grain of salt, uh, what we don't typically celebrate or just observe as joyfully in anticipation is, is the day of Pentecost, is, is today. That, that was actually a huge conviction of one of my hist- church history professors uh, who told us that in class. And, and I confess, even when he told us his conviction, it just it didn't land at the time. I thought that I understood his point on why we should observe why we should celebrate, but I just never really took the time to consider what actually took place in Acts 2. And, and for, it would be years before I actually had the same conviction as my professor. With that same professor, that actually happened on a few occasions when he said something that didn't land at the time, but, but years later it, it did. It reminds me, uh, I, I know probably men in here can understand this that, uh, or relate to this. You know, there's many things my dad told me when I was young that I just didn't understand uh, at the time, but I have come to appreciate what he said now. For instance, this is what you, well, you can probably relate to a lot of that, but specifically this one, I remember trying to shave my face in middle school. And my, dad, and my dad would tell me to stop wasting his razors. And I kept telling him, but dad, I, I want to shave so badly I can see a few whiskers poking out. He would always respond, son, you have nothing to shave off. And he always said this, you're going to hate shaving when you grow up. No way, dad. I can tell you. Four years in the Marine Corps where you have to shave every single day of your life and you're judged on that made my father's prophecy come true. I hate shaving. I mean, I, just, I absolutely hate it. I do it one day a week at this point and it's just the next. So uh, that's as far as I need to go about my hygiene and things like that. But the point is that, that, that you know, there's just... There's just times in life where you hear something and it just doesn't land, but later on in life it does. And that's a lot of times happens with one of my professors in church history, and Pentecost was one of them. For the record, I, I please do not feel guilty. This isn't shaming you if you don't share the same conviction about Pentecost. It's a very recent conviction for me. And whether or not you agree with that conviction today, my, my hope for this sermon is that you'll at least appreciate what occurred on the day of Pentecost and see its significance as well as its necessity. So to do that, we're going to look at three different things. The promise and prophecy of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and its necessity, and the results of the Spirit's work which birthed the Church of Christ. I tried to get fancy with the title and said the church is born 
reborn. And when I asked my wife how to like grammatically work that out, she was just like, it just doesn't make sense. And I was like, okay. But the title of the sermon is The Church Was Born, Reborn. So first, the Holy Spirit was promised. And she set up the scene here in Acts 2. The, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and they begin preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Right? People hear that mighty rushing wind, whatever's taking place, and, and they come to hear what's going on. I mean, we're told during that festival, the festival of weeks, that's why they, all of the nations were in Jerusalem. They're supposed to go there during the feast. And every nation that's there and speaks a different language is understanding these Galileans in their own native tongue. And, and because they can, right, because of this phenomenon, whatever's taking place, the crowd asks themselves, what is going on? What does this mean? Like, what's happening? Some mocked. But the majority, they, they want to know what is taking place. And Peter addresses the crowd and, and says in verse 16, this, gentlemen, what is men of Israel and, and those here today, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, who said in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. He's explaining to them, look, the reason you're hearing the gospel proclaimed in your own native tongue by us Galileans who don't speak it is because today Joel's prophecy has come to fruition. God is pouring out his spirit. Now, if we open up our Bibles to more of the Old Testament, it's not just Joel's prophecy coming true. And that this is another, this is a major part of God's redemptive plan unfolding at Pentecost from the promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Did I put that? Well, oh, in Genesis 12, God calls Abram or Abraham and tells him he will make him into a great nation and all the peoples of earth will be blessed through him. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, if you remember the beginning of Genesis, this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is immediately following the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, where all of the people of the earth came together to make a name for themselves. And they rejected God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And so therefore, God confused their, their one language into multiple languages so that they could no longer understand each other. And then, as more judgment, he scattered them across the entire earth so that that one nation of Babel became many nations, speaking many different languages. But then when we get to Genesis 12, in the following chapter, right after the Tower of Babel and their judgment, God says to Abraham, look, one day I'm going to make one people out of the many nations that I just scattered. And I'm going to do it through your family tree. I mean, it wasn't, it, like, in Genesis 12, it wasn't completely clear how God was going to do it. But the promise was there. God would bless the nations through Abraham's seed. And when we get to Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, this promise to Abraham that the nations would be blessed, it begins to unfold and be realized. And what we see taking place is actually a reversal of Babel's judgment. Because once, as God once scattered those, them into many nations and confused them by multiplying their languages... Now, God is gathering at Pentecost, God is gathering the nations to one place where they all hear the gospel being proclaimed by one person. All of them can hear in their native tongue what the Galileans are proclaiming. And how is it possible? Because God is pouring out his spirit among the people. Paul picks up on the promise to Abraham in his letter to the Galatians and actually explains how God fulfilled this promise to Abraham even, even clearer. Galatians 3, 8 and 9 and verse 14, Paul says, Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, those non-Jews. If you're not Jewish, it's you. Would justify the Gentiles by faith. By faith. And proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, who had faith. Verse 14. The purpose. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. I've, I've heard an illustration that maybe it was things in the, how, how revelation from God works when you look at the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. It's as, you know, you walk into a dark room and you can't really see. You can see things are there, but you can't see them very clearly. But when someone turns on the light switch, you can see everything that's there completely clear. Well, the thing is, they've always been there, right? You just haven't been able to see them yet. And this is what Paul is saying. How, 
the, the gospel, you know, was proclaimed to Abraham? Where did it get, well, if we go back to Genesis 12, like, where do you see that? It was proclaimed. It was there. They just didn't fully realize it. And Paul's saying, look, this promise to Abraham, the blessing came through Christ, and the promise came through the Spirit. That is how God blesses the nations and all the peoples of this earth. Implication of that reality. God's plan to bring peace and unite the nations through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most relevant response for the climate of our current culture today. Because everywhere we look, listen to, watch, hear, conversations. Our society is trying to separate us by our individual identities. They want us to divide ourselves by color, our color, our gender, our nationality, our wealth, our politics. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, The primary identity that we need to concern ourselves with is our identity in Christ. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ came to unite the people of God, not to segregate them. Which further implies whatever differences we, we may have, are significant in comparison to what we now have in common. I don't care what color you are or, or what gender you are, your wealth or your ethnicity makes no difference to me. If you're in Christ, loved one, right? You're my brother. You're my sister. Paul says that too. Galatians 3.26, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's your identity. Your identity is Christ, Christian. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you then belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're one in Christ. It doesn't matter how many techniques, strategies, whatever this world tries to use to solve the problems of our society, and there are problems in our society. What the Word of God tells us is that the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit is the answer and remedy to those issues. So with all of that in the backdrop of Acts 2, the day that Joel prophesied, the day that was promised to Abraham, a reversal of Genesis 11 and Babel's judgment, 
that day has finally arrived when God delivers on his promise to Abraham by pouring out his spirit upon the nations. Just a small point of, I don't know if it's application, maybe it is whatever you're going through today. One thing that we learn from God delivering on his promise to Abraham is that he is faithful to complete and to do whatever he has said he is going to do. You can trust him. That is application from God's faithfulness. You can trust him. Okay, point two. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. felt like I was yelling there for a moment. Sorry if I got a little route up there. Division in the church has happened for thousands of years by the things that said we shouldn't find our identities in. We haven't always done that well. We need to read our Bibles because our Bibles teach us how we should view a person no matter their color, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their wealth, or if they're poor, no matter who they are. When they're in Christ, we view them as redeemed and loved by God. You're just going to start yelling again. Okay, point two, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, the power of sin has enslaved humanity. Which means sin has taken us captive. We love it. We want to do it. It makes us feel good. And it influences every decision that we make. There is no escaping the fact that every single one of us are born with a sin nature and the propensity to sin. Bar Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we always make the worst decision possible. But it does mean that we always choose what is going to benefit us most, what we want to do most, or what we value greater than everything else. That's what our sin nature will always lead us to do. It won't lead us to make the worst possible choice, but it will lead us to choose what we want more than anything. And because it's a sin nature, we're never going to choose God. We're never going to value God. We're never going to value the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ or, or as our greatest treasure. We're not going to want it. And sometimes when we do, we run it for the wrong reasons. Since we're born this way, we're born with a sin nature. When we look at John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, the Pharisee, that you're born this way. That's why you must be reborn. John 3, 5 through 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus asked, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And Nicodemus just asked, how can this be? You remember Jesus' response. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't know these things? You don't understand this? Nicodemus should have understood it on some level. Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke through his prophets to tell his people about this new birth that Jesus is talking about. Look at Ezekiel in the Old Testament, 36, 24 through 27. God said, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. The issue God is addressing here, and this promise that he's even making through the prophet Ezekiel, is the need for sinners such as you and I to be reborn. Why? We'll turn to Ephesians 2 in a second, but, but mainly because the scriptures tell us that we are spiritually dead, not physically, spiritually dead, which means our spiritual condition means we are dead to God, we're alive to sin, dead to God, but how that works itself out is that our hearts are hardened toward God. So that we live in defiance toward him. And unless something happens to our hearts, we will remain callous toward him. That's what he said. I'll remove your heart of stone. Being spiritually dead means you have a heart of stone. And that's a problem. Because if that's true, if we're spiritually dead, how will a person ever turn away from their sin and toward the Savior, Jesus Christ? They won't. Not on their own. It's interesting. We read from uh, uh, John 16 this morning. And as Jesus is speaking to the disciples, he says, I will convict the world of sin and righteous and judgment. At verse 9, John 16, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
there's a sin of unbelief that Jesus says the Spirit is going to come and do something about those who do not believe in Jesus. He's, the Spirit is going to convict us about that before we become believers. That's how we become believers. But we got to be convinced. It's Paul's point in Ephesians 2. He says, look, you were dead in your transgressions, dead in your sins. You're totally helpless. You're dead. Have you ever seen a dead person? Do they move? They do nothing. They lay there. They lie there, whatever the proper. And then when we look at verse 4, though, in Ephesians 2, he says, but God, you were dead in your transgressions, but God made you alive in Christ. How? (laughs) How did God make us alive in Christ? Through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, It's why the day of Pentecost is so astonishing, because on that day, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who was poured out miraculously came and gave life to those who were dead in their sins. What happened is Ezekiel said, he took their heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And those who were dead in their sins, hearing this sermon at Pentecost, were reborn. They were born again. Implication. If you've been saved from the wrath of God solely because you believe the blood of Jesus Christ has paid for your sins, if that's you, you believe it because you've been born again. The the reason that you love Jesus, the reason you obey Jesus, the reason you, you want to be in the presence of Jesus is because the Spirit of God came in your unbelief and removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. You see the light of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. You see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because the Spirit of God brought you out of darkness. Why don't unbelievers believe the gospel? Because they're blind. They're lost. You're no longer. You can see. And you're, and you're free from sin. You're free from the power of sin. Because the Spirit of God has made you a new creation. And he's making you into a new creation. Into the image of Jesus Christ. They say, well, I'm struggling in that department. We all are. Because Christ is perfect, is sinless. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. And we're not. It takes some serious work to conform us into the image of the Son of God. So don't be surprised if you're struggling with that. I should say that We are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? We confess that. It's true. Sodomus here, when I say the work of our entire salvation is not completed by Christ alone. Yes, your sins are paid for completely by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Absolutely, amen. But when we look at Ephesians and the rest of the Bible, the Father is also involved in our salvation. And so is the Holy Spirit. The gospel is Trinitarian. So it's important that we take time to look at these things, to know the God who saved us. I want to make one quick comment that transitions into our final point, which is not off scripture or the text, but kind of off topic. Wherever you land on spiritual gifts, you know, if any of you heard me say tongues today and you're wondering if I'm going to reveal my hand and where I stand on that, I'm not going to. I'm going to say this about it, though. Wherever you land on spiritual gifts, if they continued, see some, some not, whatever, the greatest gift and the most miraculous gift you will ever receive from the Holy Spirit is when he comes and circumcises your heart and takes that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. No spiritual gift can compare to being reborn. Because there's no greater miracle than a dead man rising to life. And it leads to our final point. Because when dead men and dead women spiritually rose to life on Pentecost, when we look at you know, Acts 40, it said when that happened to 3,000 people, in one day, from one sermon, from the outpouring of the Spirit, there was a result there, which you are partaking of today. When 3,000 persons were saved at Pentecost, the church of Jesus Christ was born. Reborn. Final point. Verse 37, uh, back in Acts 2. When they heard this, heard what? What did they hear? Verse 37, when they heard this, what did they hear? The gospel of their salvation. Yeah. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's what they heard. 
when they heard, it says they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, then what shall we do? It, depending what your translation says, ESV, cut to the heart, CSB, pierce to the heart. I like pierce. I didn't check the Greek. I just, it just made me think of something, whether or not that's the, the correct translation. Pierced heart, pierced to the heart. It reminds me of Hebrews 12.4. The word is double-edged sword, is able to penetrate the heart. The word the Bible, the word of Christ is a double-edged sword. It penetrates the heart. And it's foundational to why we preach the gospel every single week. It's the preaching, when we look at Acts 2, think about it. It's the preaching of the crucified Christ, the resurrected Christ, and the ascended Christ that pierced their heart. And what's quite remarkable to me is that the one that they delivered to the cross, who was purest for their transgressions, is now the ones who is piercing their hearts. It's just as Jesus told them in John 16, when I go away, I will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me. And now, with their fears of the heart, at Pentecost, we see the Spirit of God has come and has glorified Christ through the preaching, right? Verifies that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. And now it glorifies Christ in the people listening to this sermon by persuading them, who Peter even says, you were enemies of Christ, who delivered Christ to the cross, but he persuaded them that Jesus now is both Lord and Messiah. And they said, then what shall we do? That's a response to the gospel. What shall we do? Well, you don't remain dead. You don't remain stagnant. And Peter replies in verse 38, repent. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message, they believed, were baptized. They responded. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. The response, the application to the gospel is clear. We see it in Acts 2. Those who believed the gospel, those who believed Jesus was the Messiah and Lord, who accepted Peter's message on Pentecost, repented they were baptized and they were added to the church we're going to start a church series soon in july it'd be a it, it, what happened here would be a great way to interview people for joining the local church for an addition in the church membership you would ask them just taking it right from here do you believe jesus died for your sins yes 
Do you believe he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven? Yes. Have you responded to that by turning from your life of sin and committing to follow Christ as Lord? Yes, I have repented. Have you displayed that faith through baptism in front of a local church? And once you do, you'll be added to the number of the redeemed. In the local church, you join a local church. Serve there. Be known. Know people. Glorify God with them. The people around you in Christ, they're the church that the Bible tells us the Father chose. The church that the Bible tells us the Son redeemed. And the church that the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit gave new life to and purified on the day of Pentecost. The gospel is Trinitarian. And therefore, because they, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation, they are all, well, one, they're God, so they're worthy to be praised, but we can praise them. How do I praise the Spirit? How do I observe Pentecost correctly? You praise the Holy Spirit for giving you life, from breaking you free from the power of sin. Father, thank you for choosing me. Son, thank you for redeeming me. Spirit, thank you for setting me free and giving me making me a new creation. Whether or not you're convinced that Pentecost should be celebrated, I hope you're at least convinced that every single one of us, including you, would still be dead in your sin if the Holy Spirit did not come and give you new life. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, God, the goal of preaching is to manifest the work of Christ, to exalt the triune God, Lord. And I, I can't even think of a better sermon than Peter preaching at Pentecost. It is so rich with your redemptive history, God, that makes it so clear to us that there's nothing we can do outside of asking Christ for forgiveness that can erase and eradicate our sins. There's nothing we can do outside of the Spirit coming and giving us life, outside of, outside of begging, outside of pleading for the Spirit to remove this heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. We are helpless without you. And by grace, as the song says, by grace we have been saved, and by grace you will lead us home. God, we, we, we cling on to, to Philippians 1, 6. It says, you who began a good work will complete that good work until, as Acts 2 says, that great day of the Lord when Jesus Christ, both Lord and Messiah, returns. Amen.